the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. It was a bad week for Insurance Ireland with the European Commission announcing that it was opening an antitrust investigation into whether it's operating a cartel by restricting access to a claims database used by its members. Joe Brennan of the Irish Times and Conor Faulkner of the AA join me in studio later to discuss the background to this sensational move. And also later in the show, I'll be talking to Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times and Megan Green, Chief Economist at Manulife Investment Management, about the latest moves in the US-China trade war. But I'm going to begin this week with a roundup of some of the latest business news from Peter Hamilton of the Irish Times. Peter, you're very welcome. Thanks, Kieran. Uh, we're going to begin with rent and property prices. We've had some data out this week in relation to both. That's right. Today was property prices and we saw that prices rose 3.9% in the year to March. People will be very familiar with uh, how, how property prices mm. are going at this stage. But this interestingly represents the lowest level of inflation since property prices turned around in, in 2013. Nevertheless, after four months of monthly declines, we're starting to see prices rise again. Uh, not fantastic news, I guess, if you're trying to buy. But Dublin is slowing down considerably. Uh, and that is being attributed to buyers reaching their affordability limit on the back of central bank rules. So growth in Dublin was 1.2% in the year to March, which is not, not terribly significant. Okay. Outside of Dublin, it was, it was much more significant at 6.8%. And, and the Midwest was the highest, which is interesting. Yeah, 11.9% in the Midwest. Uh, I suppose it's from a much lower base, and, and mm. that does explain that. Uh, and there's probably some way to go again there before people reach that 35 times salary limit. Uh, if you look at the highest median prices, they still remain in Dublin. Dunleary rat down at the highest of 540,000. The lowest was in Longford and Leitrim at 100,000 euro. All right. So um, bad news for first-time buyers, certainly mm. in the capital. Um, now, we had some data as well this week on rents, uh, which have reached their highest level in 13 years. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's far worse, I suppose, when it comes to rent then. And this this comes from a Daft report, daft.ie, of course, the online property website. Um, and just while we're, we're talking about that buying versus rent, the figures in Daft's report detailed how it's almost universally better to buy a property with a mortgage, or at least universally cheaper to buy a property with a mortgage rather than rent it. And it's not as if we we're getting close to uh, to to the the property or to rent prices stagnating, according to Ronan Lyons. He said we need about eighty thousand properties as soon as possible. So there are just two thousand seven hundred homes available to rent nationwide at the start of this month. Not a large number. The average rent now stands at one thousand three hundred and sixty six, almost six hundred and twenty five euro, higher than the lowest point in late two thousand eleven. It's a, it, it is a poor situation. Now uh, we had some information this week also on WhatsApp and Intel being potentially hacked or at least their information becoming vulnerable. Mm. So yesterday was WhatsApp, today Intel. So we'll, we'll do Intel first, I guess. The chip maker, they revealed a vulnerability in chips that could lead them to leak data to attackers. Uh, it's, a, it's a particularly complex thing to hack these chips, the company said. But the difficulty with it being complex to exploit means it's also hard to fix, one security researcher said. This isn't connected with previous Intel issues and it's... Uh, it's By the way, uh, Peter, do we know how this vulnerability uh, came to Intel's attention? It's not clear at the moment, Kieran. I suppose what, what we do know is is how this works. It's a particularly complex, uh, complex thing to, to try and get get into the data in these chips. These chips try and predict what somebody's going to do on their computer and therefore they push forward data before you actually need that data. And that's where the vulnerability is. But we don't know uh, how, how this issue came about and we don't know 
what the fix is going to be yet. It affects chips going back as 2011, going back as far as 2011. Yeah. Okay, now in the last number of years, WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook, has become very popular with mm. people. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people, uh, I use it, I'm sure you use it, many people in the Irish Times, many of our listeners use it, no doubt. And one of the reasons uh, people are using it is because we were told that it was totally secure, it was encrypt- encrypted end-to-end, couldn't be hacked, etc. Well, we discovered this week that uh, it's perhaps not as secure as we had originally thought. That's right. The company which is owned by Facebook discovered that attackers were able to install this surveillance software onto both iPhones and Androids. The way they do this is they'd ring up targets through WhatsApp, through their the, the phone's call function, uh, and and insert a software, if that, that means. Does the call have to be answered? The call has to be answered, uh, but only briefly. Uh, and what happens then is that the, the attacker can access the microphone and the camera on the phone. They can turn it on uh, independently of WhatsApp being in use on the phone. It's particularly worrying. Now, WhatsApp said it quickly addressed the problem, and they have told users to update to the latest version of the app. All right, and something that presumably Helen Dixon will have on her radar as Data Protection Commissioner and somebody who is in charge of regulating Facebook, WhatsApp in Europe. That's right. As of last night, they actually hadn't notified the Data Protection Commissioner, but they had notified the US Justice Department. But but you're right, uh, Helen Dixon needs to know about this pretty soon. Yeah, I think she's since said that she is actually working with the the company on this issue and they're looking into it. But um, I I guess for some people, you know, it's... um, uh, it's concerning, and I wonder if uh, perhaps it might put people off WhatsApp. We we'll wait and see. Now, um, on a on a lighter note, mm. um, let's say the Irish Times Business Awards in association with KPMG were held last Wednesday night. It was a gala event. You were there, Peter, as was I, and uh, some great award winners on the night. Absolutely, uh, and the 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 headline award winners were Stripe founders Patrick and John Collison. So they won the the Business People of the Year Award. Uh, so we do these uh, awards every month. They were the, the winner out of the 12 nominated throughout the year. And they took home the top prize for their success in building a company that's now valued at a, a pretty astonishing $22.5 mm. billion. Dollars. And a company yeah. that's also building its base in Dublin. I mean, it that's came right. out of Silicon Valley, uh, but it's now building a substantial presence here. Yeah, they're hiring engineers here. And, and the hiring of engineers kind of signals, I suppose, a shift because it means that they're now going to make products out of here. Uh, whereas, uh, I suppose, up to a few years ago, that wasn't necessarily the case, but they're they're putting resources here. So, uh, look, uh, worthy winners, absolutely. And, and uh, it, they go from strength to strength. We might see them again a couple yeah, of years Yeah, sure. There were a clutch of other rewards as well, talks through those. That's right. So, uh, Delata, the listed hotel group, which owns the Clayton and Muldron brands, they won Company of the Year. Uh, and again, for them, it was a, a pretty good year. They've been outperforming the Dublin market as a whole. And they're looking to expand into the UK. Absolutely, in a big way. And and then the Chief Financial Officer of the, of the year that went to Ken Bowles of Smurfit Cap, an extraordinarily busy year for him. Record earnings for them surging 25%. But they also took over Reparenko, a Dutch company, for $460 million. And at the same time, they had to deal with the nine billion unwanted takeover. So, uh, well done to him. And, and then the deal of the year went to Quilcher, the state-owned forestry company. They sold their stake in four wind farms for one hundred and thirty-six million. Uh, so, uh, and that was a pretty good result for them. And and the local enterprise then of the year went to Strong Roots, which people will be more familiar with in their mm. stores now. They have now, after pretty breakneck breakneck growth in the UK, they're now in the US. Uh, Again, very fast growing. They were, uh, they were uh, EY Entrepreneur of the Year. They were shortlisted a couple of years ago. So fantastic for them. And and then finally, the Distinguished Leader in Business Award went to Bridget Donahue. She's the Executive Director of Penny's Primark, and uh, people will be. But she's former executive. Former she's executive an ambassador director. now for them, and she was part of this gang of four which led the expansion of Penny's Primark 
uh, into various markets. There are 11 international markets now. Soon to be 12, uh, soon, as she mentioned in her, yeah. in her speech on the night. And uh, it's been a fantastic global success yeah. story, uh, no question about that. And I think she said on the night... The outfit she was wearing cost €22 Euros from pennies. That's right. Yeah, I, she says this uh, when I've seen her speak before. She she does mention the fact that... It's a bit of a party she, she's trick. A, you know? Yeah, but she's a great ambassador for the brand. Yeah. Uh, you know, she, and it was a powerful speech. Clothes. I mean, it's fair to say it was a great way to mm. end the night. She's she's an amazing woman. She's lived a, an amazing life as well. Yeah, and wonderful she, story. she put it all down in that speech. No question about yeah. it. Wonderful story. And I, I mean, it shows that, that she, you know, she came from, from a very normal background. Uh, so it's it's... Easily doable. Yes, indeed. <laughs> All right, Peter. Uh, well, let's hope uh, we we've a lot to uh, a lot to do to surpass the success of uh, last week's uh, event. Indeed. Peter Hamilton, thank you for that. Thank you. Now, on Tuesday, the European Commission stunned Insurance Ireland by opening a formal investigation into whether it's operating a cartel by restricting access to a key claims database. Insurance Ireland is a lobby group for the industry and its offices were raided two years ago as part of a wider inquiry into a number of issues in the sector. Joe Brennan of the Irish Times and Conor Falkland of the AA join me in studio to discuss the background to this sensational move by EU Competition Commissioner Margaret Vestager. Um, Joe, just give us the background to this. Why is she taking this action? Yeah, so um, if you just step back, there back in July of 2017 um, competition, EU competition authorities uh, together with the the Irish uh, competition authorities raided a, a number of institutions uh, Insurance Ireland was one of those and also uh, some brokers in the Irish market. Um, it became clear that there were kind of two strands of investigation at that stage one was looking at uh, Insurance Link which is the, the the database that is used by insurers to uh, access information on on, on claims and da- insurance link gives uh, insurers uh, basically gives you the name of someone who's made a claim, the address of the claim, and the nature of the claim, not the quantum of the claim, or it doesn't give any information in terms of whether there was fraud involved or not. Um, so that was one strand of investigation. Separately, they were looking at uh, commercial lines of insurance, and they they raided a number of of. Uh, Brokers in that space, uh, we reported at the time that Aon, Marsh, Campion and uh, Wright Insurance Brokers in, in Wexford had all been raided as part of that investigation. It's to do with hauliers and the like. Yeah, commercial, specifically in terms of, of, of haulage uh, coverage. And and again, against that backdrop, we had the Irish Haulage Association complaining about the fact that uh, it had seen its members' uh, insurance premiums soar over, over in years leading up to that. One issue they had was that uh, a lot of their business, a lot of their activities were in continental Europe. Their continental peers were not experiencing uh, the same level of increase so that they, we don't know if they were behind the actual uh, complaint itself but certainly the commission was looking okay. at that particular aspect. That's so, been dropped. Okay, so that was two years ago. Now what, what happened this week? So this week um, the commission has opened uh, an official investigation against one of those strands which is the, 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 the use of insurance link and it's investigating whether uh, Insurance Ireland which operates that um, has uh, impeded the, 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 the access to that link uh, to certain would-be entrants to the insurance market. We, know we don't. Made? We don't know who's made that complaint. Okay, and do we know? And the there's nothing in the formal letter that's come through so far, 
uh, that is uh, giving any indication as to who is behind the complaint. That will become, uh, that will emerge over time. All right. Do we know how many people might have been excluded over the years from this database? No, I mean, Insurance Ireland would say that no one's been excluded. You don't have to be a member of Insurance Ireland to have access to uh, Insurance Link. Um, you can be, uh, members have automatic access to it. You can be self-insured. You can also be an associate member. You can go that way, but you don't necessarily have to be a member of Insurance Ireland to get, uh, get access to Insurance Link. That's what they're saying. Yeah. Um, Connor, the AA offers insurance yeah. policies uh, to people. You don't underwrite them yourself. They're underwritten by insurance uh, companies. But do you have access to this database? We don't, no. Uh, we're treated, well, technically we're, we're termed an intermediary, but we're treated like a, effectively like a broker. So we don't have direct access to it, no. So whenever we take a unit of motor insurance, and we sell well over 100,000. So on some levels, you know, in the consumer's eye, we are an insurance company, and I get that. You know, they can give out to us about AA prices, and I get that. But in turn, we're taking those off underwriters. So we're taking it out of their machine and we're offering it to our customers. At a margin, I presume. Oh, yeah. And we can haggle with them. You know, we're, if we're bringing, you know, typically if you're bringing 120,000 units of business, you'd expect to get a bit of good treatment and get a bit of good price. So we do that. Now, we add a bit of value because we manage the customers. We do a lot of the processing and stuff. But basically, we get the product from insurers. We sell it to consumers. We make a profit on doing that. So we're very much part of the ecosystem. And an individual consumer might look at us and, you know, with a jaundiced view and say, you guys are part of the problem, and I get that. But we're not this part of the problem. Like everybody else, we are in the blind when it comes to accepting pricing that's given to us by underwriters. We don't get any great sense of transparency there. We can argue with them, but I, I, I mean, I think the kindest way you'd put it would be a degree of soft protectionism that comes from just obscuring of data. It's very, very difficult to nail down insurance companies on some of the data that they provide. That's been the central bank's experience over the years. And on Insurance Link, we're frozen out of it, um, which I Have get, you sought access to it? N- well, no, we don't need to. Is we have alternative arrangements because, as I say, we're we're not an insurance player. We're just, uh, you know, it, it, the analogy I've given is sli- slightly trite one. Um, you know, Tesco sell an awful lot of milk. It doesn't make them dairy farmers. And you know, likewise, we may sell a lot of insurance policy, but we're not an insurance company, so we don't truly need it. Where I become concerned, though, is, and I think this is where the competition authority is coming from, and, and with it, the European Commission. It should be a very attractive time to get into the provision of general insurance in Ireland right now. Why? Because premiums are high. And premiums are high at the moment. The market's expecting that. A lot of the incumbent players are, you know, were under-reserved for a period, have to lift prices. So if you imagine you're a fresh underwriter in this market, you don't have the dirty back book of maturing claims. You don't have the under-reserving problem. And you're in a market where premiums are high and the consumer expectation is that premiums will be high. So that should be fertile ground. You should be thinking, right, now is a good time to move capital into Ireland. Let's go and do it. And conspicuously, they're not. So it does beg the question, why aren't they? And and I think, you know, provocatively perhaps, but one of the answers appears to be that if you are, say, a French insurance company without, you know, some capital to set aside, you're unattracted to Ireland because you're like the poker player sitting down with less information than all the other players at the table and you're just not willing to do it. So there's a perception out there that the domestic Irish insurance companies have this market thoroughly understood, will to some degree share information or share experience with each other through mechanisms like Insurance Link, but there's no way for an external market entrant to access that. So they don't. And, and, I, and I think that's partly where, where the... Uh, European Commission are coming from. What insurers does AA use to underwrite its products? Uh, well, we keep that fresh. So this, you know, this wouldn't be a permanent answer, but at the moment it's Aviva, uh, Alliance, and um, uh, AXA. 
currently. Excellent. All right. So there are three non-Indigenous overseas uh, companies or companies from overseas. Mm -hmm. They're obviously part of Insurance Ireland. They obviously have access to this database. So why if a a French company, a German insurer, a Danish company, whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. why can't they get access to it? Why don't they just simply join Insurance Ireland, join the club? Well, there you go. Uh, There's a couple of things on that. And this, I think, is probably at the heart of the investigation. Firstly, there's a couple of, of hurdles you have to get over. You have to be proposed. Um, by one of the existing members. So that's one of the things that has to happen. The rules stipulate currently that you have to have been active in the Irish insurance market for 12 months, which is, you know, somewhat puts the, the cart before the horse. And and you could argue, are these reasonable um, uh, reasonable rules for a club? Because to be fair to the insurers, they've invested in this database. It's not like something you can, you can buy off the shelf. They put a lot of money into it. They've developed it. They have capital sunk into it. It's perhaps not unreasonable from their point of view to say, well, look, you know, you can't just say competition and walk in and, and, and take our stuff. Um, but, you know, you have to reach a point where uh, that, that crosses over the threshold of what is reasonable and becomes, uh, whether deliberately or not, a de facto barrier against new entrants. Um, and if you reach that level, then you're you're talking about perhaps significant consumer detriment. So you reach a point where, I mean, it's like the slowly boiling frog. I, I don't think there anybody setting out proactively to say, tell you what, lads, let's draw a fence around ourselves and break the law. I mean, very few people, you know, e- e- even in bad movies, very few people really behave like that. It's more a kind of a creep which reaches a point where, you know, objectively you'd assess that and say, guys, that's protectionist and, and the you know, the consumer is suffering and you have to change. Yeah. Joe, you've been speaking to Kevin Thompson, the Chief Executive of Insurance Ireland. What's he been telling you? Yeah, I mean, he said basically that um, that there is uh, it has no uh, reason to, to block people entering the uh, companies entering the, the the insurance link. The more information out there, the easier it is to, to detect and combat fraud. Um, just in terms of the sp- in sponsors, and uh, my understanding is you don't have to have a sponsor. Um, as such, most people most do, but you don't necessarily have to have. So it's not it's not a, a, an absolute prerequisite to join Insurance Link. It does say another that on thing, their website currently, mind you. Yeah. Another thing is MGAs. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you are an insurance company uh, based overseas, like a Gibraltar-based insurance company, you wouldn't necessarily set up in, in Ireland itself. You go through an intermediary as such, an agent, mm-hmm. an agent, and what you would have to do to get for the, that agent to get access to uh, to the to the database, it would have to have uh, a sign-off from the actual company itself. There may be an issue there in terms of, of, of sign-off for certain companies. In order to get access for data protection, you have to be sure that, you know, that the company that's trying to get access is has the, the, the authority from, from the actual insurer itself. Okay. Are the MGAs, are they allowed uh, yeah, access yeah, yeah, to yeah. this I mean, database? All, it's not just insurance companies. Insurance companies, uh, MGAs, other kind of uh, associate members, law firms can get access to, to, to Insurance Ireland as well. Now, they can. Those can be sponsored, but it's, I'm, I'm told that that's not a prerequisite. Right, OK. But a bad day for Insurance Ireland. And this, they seem to be completely blindsided by this. Well, there's clearly a case that the Commission believes that needs to be answered. They've been looking at this for the last two years. Um, they wouldn't come out without actually believing that there is something to be answered. It, it remains to be seen as to what... Uh, the, the actual facts are that that's going to be laid out. 
And on the haulage side, why did they drop that case? We don't know why it was why it was dropped as such. Uh, it certainly was one of the two kind of strands of investigation back in 2017. That has we our reporting and our sources are telling us that that has been has been dropped. Now we were also told by EU sources that could be taken up by the the competition authorities in Ireland. We're getting no sense of of of, of that. Okay, Connor. A lot of people listening to this podcast, you know, a lot of ordinary punters mm. really will say, aha, I knew it. There was anti-competitive practices going on. Well, they mightn't phrase it like that yeah. uh, in this insurance market. Now, that's why my premiums have been going up, not just in motor, but in other areas as well mm. over the last number of years. Very likely true, uh, or at least I can't allege a, a, a criminal cartel because manifestly that would be a criminal behaviour. And as I was saying earlier, I think it probably isn't that, even at your most sort of cynical interpretation, it, it's, it's not likely to be specifically that. But there are a few different sources of the malaise in Ireland, reason why general insurance premiums are going up. And some of them would be sort of, you know, beside the point when we're talking about Insurance Ireland. But we still have a problem with, you know, very generous compensation payments. The insurance industry frustrate me because they wave that flag all the time as if there was nothing else going on. It's one thing that's going on. It doesn't explain other stuff, but it is one thing that's going on. There's a a staggering amount of money wasted, wasted on the legal professions uh, in this country. I mean, the, the sheer destruction of value uh, for the consumer is something that you know continues to to literally frighten me. We've made that point again and again and again and again. Mind you, I think and, the law society would defend its members. Uh, well, they, and I, I, you know, I've said it to them. They don't like being called ambulance chasers. Well, I, I didn't use that phrase, but I, I I can use phrases that are equally pejorative, and I've said it to them directly. But what I will say is that a staggering amount of money is hoovered out of the system wastefully by a legal industry that has a vested interest in maintaining the inefficiency of the status quo. Um, and, and, and I think that the ultimately the, the cost for this is entirely funded by the consumer. In the case of motor, which I tend to think about more than anything else, it's about two million private motorists who collectively put money into the kitty that goes to pay lawyers. If we had a system that worked lawyers wouldn't be involved in it. Their very presence is corrosive and it is costing the consumer millions. And it is my belief that they understand that. And I think a lot of the attempts at reform in the legal space run into a a degree of inertia that derives from the fact that the players in the legal industry know that this is... Well, that may well be, but our justice system is structured in a way that allows people to hire solicitors. Indeed. uh, Or indeed barristers, uh, depending Mm. on how far they go with this, uh, to represent them. True, but I would still say that while that happens, I mean, I can be acting within my legal rights and still doing something that is, um, you know, wasteful and foolish. Um, and, you know, you might be within your legal rights to, to, to engage a solicitor, but we also have an injuries board. We also have a book of quantum. And if there's no dispute as to liability, then in a functioning system, there'd be no lawyer involved. Whereas, in fact, in 95% of cases, there's a solicitor involved. So I'll state again, with, at the risk of using pejorative words, uh, they are insinuating themselves into this value chain. They're doing so to some degree artificially and they're doing it in order to suck money out. And the only people providing that money is the punter at the bottom end. Now, the insurance companies sometimes make that point and I agree with them, but where they frustrate me is they act as if that was the only point and they use it to sort of dazzle and distract away from from criticisms that could reasonably be levelled at them. For a start, on Insurance Link, the other aspect of this to combat fraud uh, is that that data has to be properly shared with the Gardaí and because that's a story that broke only last week. Uh, the Gardaí finally, finally have a database that is functional enough to be usable and they're going to be rolling it out this year. But it's 2019. I mean, that, this is a decade late. And I believe that one of the reasons why it's late is that the insurance industry collectively just 
hasn't bothered treating it as a priority because it's not truly in the insurance... This sounds, sounds crazy, but it's not truly in the insurance industry's interest to solve the fraud problem, um, provided they can cost it accurately and provided they can be sure that they're not at a competitive disadvantage. I'm not doing this any worse than my peers. But if I can cost it properly and I know I'm not being selected against and I can charge the consumer for it... Um, then whatever I might say out loud, I don't really have that much skin in the game. I'm not incentivized to fix it. So as I say, collectively in this ecosystem, everybody seems content to let the thing roll on with the only ones in the entire system, the only ones actually putting money in being the, the consumer paying yeah. No, it should, be, it should be said that we've had... Uh, the government has put together a, a working group, interdepartmental working group have come up with a lot of recommendations yeah, and right. Oireachtas, the Oireachtas Committee uh, has come up with a lot of recommendations. I mean, a lot of work has taken place to try and implement measures that might actually take effect and, and have the effect of bringing um, the cost of premiums down. One of, one of the frustrating things uh, for me in relation to the insurance industry is that a lot of better court settlements are done uh, by the insurers and they'll often tell you on background, off the record, that they do it because, yes, we know that this might be a fraudulent case, but it's cheaper to settle out of court than to take it the whole way and possibly lose. You never know which way it's going to go in court. Um, and we don't have any information, or at least we didn't have previously, we don't have any information about these settlements. Correct. Um, look, the, the point is well made, Kieran. There, there has been a significant amount of progress made, to be fair, if I park my cynicism a little bit. And that Oireachtas Committee genuinely did do good work. I, I attended a couple of the meetings myself. Likewise, the Minister was Owen Murphy at the time when he uh, began the working group, subsequently Michael Darcy. We met both. I attended some of those committee meetings myself. The quality of the report, I think, was very good. Uh, and there's been some progress made on implementation. It, it's frustratingly slow, but I guess y- your point is fair. If I suspend my default cynicism for a bit, I have to acknowledge that some movement has occurred. Uh, but it's still pretty darn slow. And and I, I think what's happened as far as public attention for this is concerned is that the consumer's expectation has, has kind of normalised around high premiums. They shot up in about 2015. They haven't come down but people got used to them. So, you know, when I get my insurance renewal this year, it's not 40% higher than last year, and hence I'm not ringing my TD burning his ear off. Uh, but they haven't come down. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of these reforms are are happening with a, a, a degree of slowness that is so painful that that um, it's it's not too cynical to suspect that, you know, some of this inertia is 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 willful. Um, and I think particularly on the legal side of things, I, I would believe. That. All right, but Joe, it's not the legal profession who's on trial here, if you like, in yeah. terms of this investigation. <laughs> Another element is, you know, how, you know, shockingly unable the insurance industry is to price risk. Um, the reason why we are where we are and why insurance premiums shot up so much in the years three years up into 20, 2016 is because they were loss-making. And the reason why they were loss-making because they weren't able to price the risk of the of what they were putting on their books. Was well, it possible to price that risk, though? I think they could have done a Given much the better job. I think they could have done And, of course, in past I mean, years, they were able to fall back in the investment income they were Well, the two things. I mean, when Pi was set up first, it was a... Insurers were able to release a lot of reserves yeah. we built up before that. That game was played out by the the, the time the, the the financial crisis hit. In the years after that, you had uh, unemployment dropping, you had motor usage uh, falling as well. Then it started to grow again, uh, and that's when you saw the the, the increase in, in in the number of claims and the number of of, of, of actual casualties. They should have been able to model for that itself, and the reserves were way too low, and they were relying as well when when they had 
eaten through reserves or relying on investment income. Invest, investment income yeah. basically has, has, has fallen dramatically as well because corporate bond yields, government bond okay, yields. Okay, but as an industry, well. they're back in profit now, I think. Joe, well, uh, they've overshot. So if you go to the, the increased premiums, for, if you look at motor, it rose 70% in the three years to the end of 2016. They've come back by about 24% since then. So they overshot at that period. It wasn't just inability to price risk correctly, by the way. I mean, Fair criticism, but it wasn't just that. They were also chasing reckless operators. You had reckless operators in play in Ireland um, who were hoovering up market share by offering prices that uh, were literally too good to be true. We're talking about the likes of Satanta. Satanta and... and, and, There was a payment this week from the High Court. And prior to that, Quinn. Out of the compensation fund. But the industry has been very willing to chase. Correct, yeah. Very few players are willing to cede market share. Uh, and and not go after these guys. And the, it's an industry that has tended to move like a herd. After it, that's very well phrased. It move it moves like a herd. And and um, what 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 motivates them is they're terrified of being the outlier. Isn't that ridiculous? But I mean, it's just human nature being what it is. Um, and 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 yes, they, you therefore get this this unwholesome dynamic that we've All right. seen. A lot of moving parts here, Joe. Where where does this go from here? This investigation could last for years. Um, there have been some suggestions that uh, if there is a fine, it could be levied on individual firms. Our understanding is that it's that the letter is very clearly um, targeting Insurance Ireland and the operation of Insurance Link. Um, Insurance Ireland is limited by guarantee if it were insolvent, for example, and it hadn't the money. So basically, the, the fine could be up to 10% of, of turnover. Uh, our understanding is that turnover is about 3.5 million. Uh, if it didn't have the money. It could it could it could go back to its its members uh, to to find the money to 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 pay any fine if 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 one were imposed on 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 the yeah that would ultimately go back to policyholders and presume yeah. uh, I mean there are appeal mechanisms in here as well. This is going to last. Go this is going on, on and on yeah, and on. Yeah. And was this just Marguerite Vestager? Was that was this her clearing her desk in advance of the European elections and the European Commission <laughs> uh, effectively retiring uh, in advance of a new one being appointed later in the year? Yeah, one of the final things before we kind of enter a kind of a lame duck period after the European right. elections okay. and the sure, new commission. Sure. Kevin Thompson is very thankful for that. All right. Joe Brennan, Conor Falkland, thank you for joining us. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back to the Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Let me just remind you that you can download this podcast for free from iTunes and you'll also find it on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. Earlier this week, President Donald Trump dismissed the deepening trade war with China as a little squabble as he reiterated threats to place tariffs on an extra $325 billion of Chinese exports. The US raised tariffs on $200 billion of exports from China last Friday, while Beijing responded on Monday by announcing tariffs on $60 billion of US goods. This tit-for-tat has been playing havoc with stock markets, and I'm joined now in studio by Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times, and by phone from New York by Megan Green, Chief Economist at Manulife Investment Management, to discuss the latest moves and what they mean for stock markets globally. Uh, Cliff, you might just put into context what's been going on with this trade war, because it's not just been happening in the past couple of weeks. This has been bubbling away for some time. Absolutely. I suppose the roots of this are in President Trump's election campaign, when he tried to, I guess, tap into populist sentiment, which was that America was losing out and that particularly blue-collar workers were were losing out on jobs and income uh, and and hadn't been gaining ground the last few years. 
And his argument was, look, America is not getting a fair shake in the global trade business and that China in particular was playing on fair through practices like uh, stealing intellectual property, allegedly, and also, more importantly, perhaps by uh, subsidising its own companies, particularly in high-tech areas that were the growth areas of the future, like robotics and, and areas like that. Is he right? So, because, I mean, he's quoted figures. He, he's saying for many years, the United States has been losing uh, somewhere between 300 and 500 billion a year with China in terms of trade. Yeah, I think the figures are, 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 are pretty spurious that, that he throws out. Uh, and, you know, most economists reckon that trade is a, is a win-win business in general for both sides or can be. That would be what traditional economic theory would, would suggest. Uh, but Trump takes a different approach. It's a win-lose approach. So he wants to win. Uh, he sees a deficit in trade as a bad thing, whereas economists would say, well, look, deficits and surpluses in different areas of trade are pretty normal. That said, there are arguments about the way China subsidizes a lot of its businesses. There are arguments about uh, intellectual property. And, and these have been things, I suppose, that have been bubbling under in the, in the World Trade uh, in, in the World Trade Organization and in World Trade Affairs for, for, for many years now. Trump decided to take a very aggressive approach, if you like, to, to try to deal with this. The first tariffs were imposed, uh, you might remember, last year when the president uh, announced tariffs on all steel and aluminium imports, not only from China, but from many other countries as well, with some exceptions. China took umbrage to this and imposed tariffs in response. Uh, the US uh, retaliated with tariff its, uh, tariffs of its own on some Chinese products. And it really got some heat then uh, over a period of time with talk of serious tariffs being imposed last January. Then talks were agreed. Uh, both sides agreed to have talks, a standstill period on further tariffs. Uh, that was to finish last March, but it's kind of gone on. And, and, and generally, the markets felt that a deal would probably be done. So what happened last Friday when the president came forward and announced these big tariffs on uh, 200 billion of Chinese imports, as you said, came as a surprise, hence the big fall off in markets. And particularly then when, uh, when China retaliated. Hard to know where it goes from here. Both sides have started to dig themselves in here. There's a lot of... Uh, a lot of fire in terms of in terms of what's being said on both sides. A lot of pride now at stake on both sides. Nonetheless, it is possible that a deal could still be done, uh, that both sides could draw back from the brink. Uh, but they have a very close trading relationship. The world's two biggest economies. We're already seeing American consumers being hit, American businesses being hit, Chinese growth being hit, and world trade in general uh, being hit by this. Uh, and the fear is, you know, that this could escalate talk of uh, the Chinese buying less Boeing aircraft, uh, talk of America imposing further tariffs. Uh, and, and I think the real fear, th th these things have a direct impact on, on growth in both countries, but the real fear really is the impact on confidence, the impact on investment uh, across the world in businesses. That's, that's really a, a kind of a dodgy time. Yeah, let's uh, talk to Megan Green in New York about that, actually, because confidence is very much key to stock markets. And as Cliff mentioned earlier, stock markets did wobble uh, when the uh, when President Trump announced those tariffs last week, Megan. Yeah, that's right. So they wobbled a little bit, um, but it's really taken until today for them to fall significantly. And to be fair, there's been a lot of bad economic data coming out of both China and the U.S. today. So that could be contributing as well. Um, the problem is that uh, Trump has has declared himself to be the tariff man, but also the Dow man. So he's obsessed with this uh, equity index, the Dow, 
um, which isn't really the right one to look at. You would normally look at the S&P, which is a much bigger equity index, but he's obsessed with this one. And so um, he's measuring his success or failure as a president based on how the Dow is performing. And at the same time, he says that he's a tariff man. So he's you know, standing up to China um, that's playing out really well across his base. So he can't really be both at the same time after a certain point. Um, and so the good news about the the equity indices falling um, is that maybe Trump will actually be forced to step back. We saw this um, before with the last round of tariffs um, when there were talks in Buenos Aires at the G20 meeting. Um, they weren't going very well, and then the U.S. equity indices all fell, and all of a sudden, um, the U.S. delegation came up with some concessions and, and some compromises. So we might end up seeing that again. Um, there's a G20 meeting in June, uh, and that's really the next opportunity for the U.S. and China to sit down in person and try to hammer out a deal. But in terms of where this is going, it's really difficult because uh, the U.S. president has incredible power on trade. Um, he was delegated that power by Congress uh, a couple decades ago. So um, it really does come down to President Trump's whims. And, of course, we're going into an election year next year. And uh, as I said, standing up to China and being tough is playing out really well across the Republican base. So even if we get some kind of deal, um, if you look at the general growth trajectories of these two economies, which are both fighting to be the biggest economy in the world, um, the U.S. is slowing down. And China's trying to accelerate. It slowed down really significantly last year. So if we're going into the end of the year, China's provided all this stimulus to reaccelerate. The U.S. is slowing down. Even if they come up with a deal in June at the G20 summit, I, I can't see trade really staying off the table going into an election year. There's a bigger game at play here, Megan, isn't there? Because China has for many years been building itself up into this uh, superpower and I think Donald Trump would argue that America has gone soft uh, in many ways in the previous administrations uh, because the threat of Russia had, had basically evaporated in the 1990s and, and had allowed the situation uh, where China is uh, effectively a superpower, a major economic power, had allowed this uh, to be created. And now he feels it his duty almost um, to, to intervene and play the strongman here. It's true. And there are two areas where I would say most economists actually agree with Donald Trump's um, approach to this. One is uh, just in terms of intellectual property. So um, China ha has been getting a free lunch um, with forced technology transfers from U.S. companies who have to operate in China. They have to partner with a Chinese company and give them their intellectual property. That's pretty unfair. Um, with government subsidies in China of all these high-tech sectors. Um, so most economists agree that's unfair. Um, and also, I think most of our allies in the U.S. agree that that's unfair. So so we could have formed a large coalition and addressed this in a um, in a very different way, but have chosen to go it on our own um, in the U.S. The, the second issue that I think a lot of economists would agree is that um, trade really isn't a free lunch for everyone. Um, so it's not a win-win for everyone on the aggregate level. If you're looking at um, overall economies, it is a win-win. But if you dig in deeper, actually, there are a lot of people who lo lose out from trade. And I think as economists, we've just kind of papered over that. Um, but the election of Trump, um, Brexit, uh, the, you know, the election of the Italian government, which is quite populous, um, the kind of emergence of some populist movements across the developed world have really forced us to address this issue that actually redistribution is important and we should look at trade um, with redistributive policies 
in mind. And as economists and policymakers, we don't really know how to do that because redistribution is really politically toxic. And so it is at least forcing us to address some of these issues that there are some losers from globalization and trade, and we should probably figure out something to protect them. Cliff, are there implications for Ireland from all of this? And it should be said that Trump isn't just making shapes with China in terms of trade and Mm. tariffs, but also with the EU. Yeah, I mean, there are no, I guess, direct implications from the tariffs on uh, US-China trade. Uh, There are indirect implications in terms of the growth in world trade, which has stalled in the last last year or so. Uh, And it's actually starting to fall back or grow very slowly this year, depending on what forecast you look at. Obviously, we're a big, we've a, we're a big trading economy. Um, that that's bad news for us if that if that we're trend were to take hold. Yeah, one of the one of the world's most open economies. So, in a way, we depend on we depend on uh, on, on growth. I suppose I make two further points. One is, as you say, uh, there have been trade tensions between the US and the EU. Uh, sectors like the whiskey sector here are worried that they could be in the firing line if that escalates in the next few months if uh, the president uh, takes his eye off China and decides to target Europe instead and as Megan said with an election coming up you know who knows where he'll direct his fire the other thing I suppose is that kind of deeper point that um, we've seen through trade policy and through tax policy that uh, President Trump and, and the whole direction of US policy now is to get investment at home to keep investment at home. Uh, and the, the fear from the Irish point of view is this could lead, I guess, to some pullback in the globalisation trend, which has been of such benefit to us because we know all the massive companies that are in Dublin and across Ireland, the thousands of people they employ. Uh, and, and, and the whole trend for American companies uh, over the last 20, 30 years, when they want to serve international markets, is to set up bases elsewhere. And Ireland has benefited hugely from that. I guess there is a question now with all this talk of tariffs, uh, changes in tax policy about you know where that's going to go in the next 10 or 15 years. That, that's a longer term thing. But the short term thing, I think, is a hit to confidence at a time when global growth is already a little bit, a little mm-hmm. bit dodgy. Some better signs in the last few weeks, some still poor signs, hard to, you know, hard to know. But, but that's, the, I guess, the immediate implication for us. Megan, how worried should we be about the slowdown in China, in Chinese growth and uh, in US growth as well? The Eurozone not doing very well either. Um, you know, what's the market view on, on all of this? The backdrop is not very encouraging. Yeah, so as a global economist, your view of what's going on in the global economy has to be driven by what's happening in China. Uh, so as I mentioned, China slowed down really significantly at the end of last year um, and has been shoveling tons of coal into the furnace in terms of fiscal and monetary stimulus measures. Um, the big question is just whether that can work. Um, and there have been a lot of indications that the economy stabilized and is starting to accelerate, although uh, the latest data um, suggests that actually maybe that's that's faltering. And so if you believe that Chinese authorities can provide enough stimulus to stabilize the economy, um, then actually you have a fairly benign view of the the global economy. If China can't, um, with the US and Europe and Japan all slowing down, that's a much bleaker picture. Um, My view is that actually the Chinese authorities will do whatever it takes to stabilize their economy. Um, They're not so concerned about growth as they are about unemployment. Um, If you have a centrally planned 
authoritarian uh, economy, then you can't really have a spike in unemployment or you get social unrest. So I do think that they've done a ton in terms of stimulus over the past nine months, and it's just starting to bite and hit the economy. Um, that should also help out Europe and Japan. So Germany and Japan specifically, if China reaccelerates, that can provide some demand for Europe and Japan. But other than that, the U.S. and Europe and Japan are all undergoing a slowdown, but they're all slowing down from above their potential growth. And that shouldn't surprise anyone. Uh, the only way to continue growing above potential growth is to have fiscal or monetary stimulus. And we're not really seeing any of that across the developed world. Um, or you could try to boost your potential growth. And there are only two ways of doing that. One is to boost your productivity growth, which we're not really seeing happen happening across the developed world either. Or you could increase your labor supply, um, largely by accepting loads of migrants. And unfortunately, the developed world is all turning their backs on that. Um, the ironic exception to that is Japan, which is actually accepting more immigrants to help them prepare for the Olympics, build infrastructure. Um, but it's really a drop in the bucket and from a very low level in Japan. So if you're not getting a fiscal stimulus, a monetary stimulus, a boost in productivity growth, or a jump in the labor supply, there is no reason these economies should continue to grow well above their potential rate. And so we should expect them all to slow down. Um, for the U.S., that means around 2% growth. For Europe, that's somewhere between 1% and 1.5% in aggregate. And um, for Japan, that's around 0.5% growth. And that's, that's what we're seeing. Um, but China is really the unknown factor in this global picture. Uh, finally, Megan, Cliff mentioned earlier about um, Donald Trump's re-election campaign. Um, how, how advanced uh, are, uh, you know, the, the election uh, electioneering in the US at the minute? What's the, what's the mood on the ground of people? Is there a sense that Trump uh, could get another term or that the Democrats might be able to come up with a candidate to, to depose him? Yeah, so it's difficult to really see at this point. Um, we Everyone is in election campaign mode, but the Democrats have over 20 candidates who are running for the nomination. So, um, and, and what tends to happen uh, and is happening now is that um, they all t tend to try to kind of out extreme one another um, to get the nomination. So we are seeing a lot of talk of um, heterodox economic policies um, coming out of these candidates that may never see the light of day. So once we actually get a candidate, they they will probably move towards the center. So it's hard to know who Trump's competition is from the Democrats. Um, possibly Joe Biden seems to be, according to polls, a front runner, but there's a lot of time still for that to change. Um, on the Republican side, it doesn't seem like there really are any credible candidates to challenge Trump. Um, and I think whoever is going to challenge him, whatever party they come from, they need to be able to master a simple narrative because that is what Trump is really excels at. Um, at this point, if I had to make a call, my guess is that Trump would be reelected. But as I said, the elections a ways away, a lot can change. At this point in the election cycle, none of us knew who Obama was. And sure enough, he came in to win um, the election. So a lot can change. But at this point, it seems like Trump's re-election seems the most likely scenario. Sure. And even if he's not re-elected, there's nothing to say that the, the narrative around the economy and so forth will change because he has he has sort of forced uh, people, forced his opponents, if you like, to go to the extreme side uh, in terms of their economics. Yeah, and especially on trade, actually, because uh, this sort of protectionist, anti-globalization approach isn't a Republican approach. It's actually traditionally a Democrat approach. So no matter who wins this election, I don't think that we can really put this trade um, genie back in the bottle. I think this is probably what the approach that we're going to have from here on. 
Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Joe Brennan, Connor Falkman, Cliff Taylor and Megan Green for their contributions. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Let me remind you that this podcast is available for free from iTunes and you'll also find it on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. And don't forget, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times business feed each day on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.